Everyone experiences culture shock. Right, Jason? I know I have. Tell, tell me about a time you've experienced some major culture shock. Well, I went to China one time. Huh? Actually, I went to USSR one time. Is so the Soviet... Wait, you went to... The, this is pre-1990? Yeah. Pre-1989? I, I went to the USSR, and when I left... A week later, boom, USSR fell. Anyway, that's really? not my story. You don't know how lucky you are. I know. I was there when it, all the, the good stuff was happening. But anyway, culture shock happened to me in China. And it's <laughs> okay. related to toilets. Okay. So Lay it on me. you go to a public toilet, and I'm a Westerner. So you expect what they call Western <laughs> toilets. Right. And there are no Western toilets. And um, it's a hole in the ground. You go in there, it's a hole in the ground. You got to pull your pants down and you you kind of squat over top of the hole and go. Okay. So that's it. It's <laughs> just a hole. It's just a hole. It's called it. <laughs> we, well, I was going to say the name of it is a squatty potty, but that probably is not official. And I don't, okay. I don't remember, but I don't think they had toilet paper. So um, what? What? <laughs> it's culture. Wait, so shock. you just had, you just. <laughs> You just had camper's butt the whole time you were in China? Camper's butt. (laughs) I didn't know that's what it was called. So you, well, it's part of culture shock. So, I mean, how about you? I mean, have you ever had like... Well, no, I want to know more about the squatty potty. Was it like a hole into like a, like a, like a, was there like water flowing through some sort of, uh, of, of pipe? Well, I didn't look in it. Really deep, deeply. Because if you if you look directly into its eye, you lose your soul. <laughs> right. I didn't study the squatty potty, but anyway, you walk in. the The hole is even with the floor. You know, the floor where your okay. feet are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you got to bring your whole body down to the hole as, uh-huh. as close as you want, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then, so that's, that's how it works. There's got there's got to be some technique to that. Oh, I had is. some. I had some major culture shock. 1986, World's Fair, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Go up there with my family. Guess where we got to stay? Bed and breakfast. First time I ever stayed there. You know what that is, right? Yeah, I love bed. That's that's a culture shock? Well, no, we were sleeping because it was it was like the city that all of a sudden, like, you know, doubled in size or something like that because of the World's Fair. Oh, yeah. People coming in, so like everyone converted their everyone. All of a sudden, their house was a bed and breakfast. Oh. I was staying on somebody's foldout couch and eating cereal in their in their breakfast nook every morning before going. And here's what happens: I don't know if you knew this about Canadians, but based on my one experience eating breakfast at a Canadian's house, they put milk in the bowl before they put cereal. No, what the hell? That's pretty weird. That's not how you make cereal. Well, you can't you can't gauge the amount of cereal you want to no, eat when no. you do that. What, there's there's this whole idea. It's a displacement. It's physics, and apparently it doesn't uh, doesn't come into play in what, what kind of toilets the Pacific do, Northwest of Canada. What kind of toilets do they have in Vancouver? I you know what I was just so consumed with this whole milk before cereal thing <laughs> cool. that I couldn't. So that's your culture shock. Thank you. That was my culture shock, man. Thanks, it was big thanks, time. Thanks, Carl Pilkington. 
<laughs> so that was that was it for me. I An haven't been back abroad. since, okay. except for three other times. So what is this show about? This shows we're talking about uh, corporate culture, culture at your firm, business culture, which has nothing to do with toilets in China or <laughs> or milk too. before cereal in Canada, right? Foreign but, countries, but it has the same word, and that word is culture, and that's right. what we're focusing on today. That's right. So we want to dive into what there was a cool article on HBR. Our producer Jennifer Blummer kind of was looking through, and she really kind of wanted to craft. A whole show on culture, which I think is awesome. I love culture. So uh, she has this cool article on HBR called "The Defining Elements of a Winning Culture." Yeah, it was it was good. Yeah, it was good. And I like you know I like HBR because a lot of times what they do is it's not hey here's what I think. They it's like a lot of times it's a research they did. There's some kind of research mm-hmm. stuff these people are doing. Uh, and so this yeah. one is no different. They have um, they talk about a Bain and Company survey of more than 400 senior executives, uh, and it was a trip. They interviewed them. They said fewer than one in four thought culture actually led to uh, a difference in performance at their company. They so I guess what the 400 people are saying uh, is culture didn't really matter in their company, and that that sounds kind of shocking because the article is about culture does help your company. Right. Well, I don't, and, and see, I didn't think that they were saying that uh, culture didn't help their company. Oh, I th- what I read, at least reading between the lines on this, because they didn't get in too deep into the research or the actual replies that they got. What I was getting out of it is that uh, is that one in four companies uh, just didn't didn't uh, actively pursue a specific culture that they. That whatever culture happened happened on its own without a whole lot of thought or or uh, or uh, you know you know what I'm trying to say right yeah well and you're right I, it does say the leaders of these org- organizations said culture was <clears throat> sorry largely disconnected from what it took to win so right. it's just a disconnection but the article is saying culture is the the competitive advantage it's it's the way you win and most companies don't intentionally define and create a culture but right. it's actually one of the ways you win well it says it says it's a competitive advantage because it says that culture is one thing that is very very difficult for your competitors to imitate you could have an a plus culture that you've cultivated at your firm at your business at your corporation but you can't you can't just transplant culture from one place to another because it's bigger it's it's messier it's it's less tangible than uh, than how do you do your service or how do you create your product you know everybody can make a tablet computer now right right apple right but apple. not everybody not everybody can have a ceo that comes in and simultaneously makes people feel horrible <laughs> but motivates them to do inhuman uh <laughs> Feats of super smarts. <laughs> well, true. But let me ask you this. I got a question for you. See if we uh-huh. can answer this question. Okay, it's true. Let's say culture is a competitive advantage. Maybe uh-huh. maybe it makes you more winning than your competitor. I think that's uh-huh. what competitive advantage means. But right. we don't advertise culture, so we're not saying, I don't know, if it is our competitive advantage, it's not the thing we're branding our company with typically, are we? So how do people... How is it the competitive advantage if, like, largely people don't even know what it is? I don't know. 
We know what Apple's is, and we don't work there. Yeah, but most companies right. don't let people right. know what their culture is, so I don't know how it's a competitive well, advantage. Mo- well, here's the thing. I say most companies, they, their culture isn't a competitive advantage because they haven't, they haven't done anything to cultivate a specific culture. They have, they've just, they've started their business, they've gone along with what they did, and culture is just something that happens on its own without people really putting a lot of thought or effort into creating it. Do you think I'm right or you think I'm wrong? Well, no, now that you're, you're saying that, I think that's the gist of the article. They're saying, yeah. hey, it can be a competitive yeah, advantage. That's right. Um, but it's not actually, you know, one in four of these executives, 25% said, it's not. It's disconnected from how we win as a yeah. company. And yeah, the article, the whole point is, no, that's stupid. It's supposed to be connected. I would say because if if this if that survey if that Bain and Company survey was done among accounting firms, yeah, what do you think about that? How are I, how are CPA say, firms doing? I would say that uh, I, I would say that most the vast majority of CPA firms don't give a second thought to culture and no. that there's no, I, I can't think of any, any, well, I, sorry, I, not, let me, let me back that up. I think you've done a great job at, at Blummer and company CPAs. Is that what you're called? Is it Blummer and no, company? No. What is no. it? It's Blummer. It's Blummer and Blummer Associates. Blummer and Associates. Bl- <laughs> Blummer <laughs> and Associates. But you, I mean, you totally screwed that up. But that's I get your point though. No, you've got you've got yeah, I screwed up your name, but I but my point was dead on. And you I'm got to admit and I'm it. doing a good job advertising it to the world. Exactly. Well, that's exactly right because it is a competitive advantage to you. If you look at what's the difference between the culture at Ernst and Young, PwC, KPMG, and Deloitte? Boom, the same suit and tie. Nobody knows. Nobody, Nobody knows. knows. Well, here's I mean, here's why I think I know why. And maybe I wonder if you would agree because we both have worked in previous CPA firms, and I think the cultures of CPA firms are partner centric, meaning it's yes. centered around that guy or that woman who owns mm-hmm. that thing to the point that if you say something you shouldn't, they're like, "Hey, whose name is on the door? Mm-hmm. This is all about me." And um, it's true; you can tell because. Anyway, I don't want to get in too much trouble, but you know, there you know, in the past firm, a lot centered around some of the owners, and uh-huh. it, you know, the the ret- the the day long retreat was about the owners. A lot of stuff was about the owner, and so that culture is it was partner centric, and I think that's uh-huh. dangerous because when it's centered around an individual, uh, all individuals have you know. Funky idiosyncrasies that you kind of have to work around, and those become part of the culture, and that's not fun. Well, it, it uh, see, I don't know, Jason. I don't know because I think I think to establish a to establish a real identifiable corporate culture. This is this is what I think. This doesn't come anything from this uh, HBR blog that we're talking about. Right, we're this comes it. from the brain of Greg Kite, which means that it is rooted in systematic anecdotal evidence, and that is that that culture, it, I, culture is something that is is there's a default cult. I I believe there's something that's a default culture in business, which means. 
I'm not doing anything to really promote a specific culture. We're just trying to get the job done and trying to make money. That's going to end up with this default culture, which is just plain vanilla. It's mayonnaise. Nobody really likes it. Nobody hates it. You try to have HR department. I don't know, blah, blah, blah. But if you're going to have a well-defined culture that is going to be a competitive advantage, I think this is what makes the difference is that is that management has to sacrifice to establish a culture. Ooh. I think that's the biggest thing within a culture. What are you what are you trying to do? What are these seven I mean, we'll go on to this. If if you're if 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 one of your part of this blog, listener just to fill you in, at one point in this blog it says that there's uh seven performance attributes that have to align with the company's strategy and if you got a solid culture you'll have like three or four of these that really stand out right. within your culture but you have to sacrifice to be able to do these to be able to have any of these things if you're going to have an honest if honesty is part of your culture that means that you had to give something up that would have been a really easy win for you just to lie there's got to be some kind of sacrifice that you make to establish that culture okay so you're saying like let's take CPAs for example um, mm-hmm. If if a CPA is listening and they want to start establishing culture and make it you know competitive advantage from other firms, that they can't just start doing stuff. They're going to actually have to sacrifice a little bit of some of the things they won't give up a little bit of control possibly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because culture is created not just by the owner but by all employees that are part of it. And Jennifer yeah. made a point. My wife, who works with me in our firm, made a point of this. She she makes a point to tell me that each person we hire or get rid of in our firm affects and changes the culture slightly, and that yes. it sounds like you're saying we want to let that happen, and that the owner, to let it happen, needs to sacrifice and give up a little bit of control of how they want the culture to be. They need to let the culture be built by the people that they hire, thus hiring needs to be pretty strategic and centered around your culture. Yeah, I that, think, was a, I think that, that was a mouthful. I don't know that any of that made sense. No, I think no, I think that's absolutely true. And you know, and it, it goes back to something that you said a long, long time ago. I think on one of these podcasts that if you suck, you suck at everything, Boom. and that's and that's part of it. As a as a, I mean, it, it gets back to all of the just like the basics of having a good business. What's your why? If your why is well defined, and if you've got it in the front of your head, and if you can explain it or draw it or say it in a poem or however you express your why, <laughs> that's going to help that. And if you and if you only hire people who have a similar interest in that why, that's going to that's going to refine and help def, help help continue to define this culture. It's based in all that stuff. So you're exactly right. So it's so and, it's true that culture is not hoped for or unintentional, it actually mm-hmm. becomes strategic and planned. It is. And I think it does come back to, 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 to sacrifice again, because I mean, we're, ta- we're talking about a, a, a profession that we're in where, where top talent, getting people who are really good at stuff, have great technical skills. Those people are hard to find. Yes. Right. Yes. And, and you're going to sacrifice if you find somebody who has the right skills but isn't the right fit with your culture to pass those people by wow. because you're looking for somebody who fits with your culture. That's a sacrifice. So would okay, okay, that's a good point. So would you say in hiring a right fit to the culture is more important than the technical ability of the person you're hiring? Which one's higher? I um 
Well, they say that technical ability can be taught, right? Boom, boom. I, I agree. So, and I think, again, you're go ahead. I think a cultural fit is more important. Now, that speaks to our hiring processes, right? Because mm-hmm. we hire towards the technical side, right? We're like, uh-huh. how long you been doing tax returns? How many right. tax seasons have you gone through? And actually, that's all crap you can teach. We're not hiring for culture because we right. don't know our culture. And if we right. knew it, we could hire for it. And yeah. um, boom, we would have competitive advantaged companies. That was big time what you just said. We don't know our culture, so we can't hire for it. I think that's totally true. I was at my first firm, I was hired not because of my technical ability. I was hired as part of the QuickBooks team. I'd never opened QuickBooks before <laughs> in my life. But they but they let you know the things that they hired me for is that they liked some of the initiative that I showed. They liked, you know, I, I believe they liked some of the uh jokes. You know, at least you know personality wise that they you know they felt like I was a cool guy did i really mesh with the culture no so i think it doesn't just have to do with your hiring process but cuz they did, they they did a lot of stuff they went through a lot of hoops to see if i was the right guy for their firm and they still hired me um thinking i was i was not and i think it also has to do again sacrificing do you how quickly do you get rid of somebody who's uh, who's a cancer-causing agent within the culture of your well, firm. Well, okay, so that's a good point because we've had to get rid of people, too, that weren't really a good fit for our culture. And, uh-huh. But I, I don't know. Maybe if they're not a good fit for their culture, they're not a cancer-causing issue. It's just okay. they're— that too? <laughs> that, Maybe it's a little strong. They're just <laughs> affecting your culture. In a way that okay. you didn't you didn't intend. Like so, for right. example, if you they're digging, they're taking out your toilets and putting in little holes in the bathroom. Right? Yeah, they're doing. And you're like, I like toilet paper. <laughs> I don't. Right. So <laughs> let's say you're a fun company. That's you're uh-huh. like, listen, we want to have fun, uh-huh. and you we want to hire people that are fun. And you hire mm-hmm. somebody who's like, yeah, I don't like to have fun. I like to go home. And um, so the longer you leave them in your company. <laughs> It's not that it's a cancer-causing mm. issue. Some some could be, but they're going to bend and change your culture just a little bit so that all yeah. of the fun, people know, well, I can't have fun around that person. So they kind of right. squash a little bit of the fun when that person's in the meeting. Those little right. things can happen, and I think, I don't know, maybe that is a definition of a cancer it's very well, slow no, and well no i think i think i think your distinction was good because you don't because again you want to if if you're doing stuff right you're not just going to wait until oh my gosh we've got a cancer in our in our company that we've got to go have radiation and surgery to get out right you're saying you need to it doesn't even have to be something that's as grandiose as something that seems like a carcinogen that's been introduced to your corporate body right. that uh, you know make make the make the change quicker. It's right. got to be even more subtle than that. Okay, can I can I back us up even a step further yeah, from let's this? Do it. What? How much do you think people really sit back and envision what they want their company's culture to be like? Do you think? Because I guess part of me part the 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 cynical part of me wants to say that not many people do that. But then no. the practical part of me thinks that anybody who's starting a new business probably has high hopes for what the culture at their business is going to be like. I think I think both of the things you just said are true. They don't plan for it all, but they have high hopes that it will be something great. 
So you don't think people sit in the dark room all by themselves with their with a with a smoking pipe with a gu- a glass of scotch on the rocks that they're sipping while they're overlooking a mountain landscape and go what do I want my business to be like how do I no. want it to feel Well let me ask you this how many times have you filled out a culture questionnaire Zero. I mean those, yeah that crap doesn't exist <laughs> nobody's thinking about it so uh-huh. no so we go into building a company and we're like this uh-huh. thing is going to be the next freaking apple uh-huh. But we don't but do you, any. We have high hopes that our company will be something great. But this is an air, culture is an area uh-huh. where I don't think just CPA firms, but all companies are failing to to focus on. I, th- uh-huh. I think I think it's a I think it's well, a big problem. I think it's but I think it's even worse in CPA firms. They are pater- they are paternalistic, hierarchical mm. structures. Mm-hmm. And I think culture does not thrive in that, where you have the the dad do what the dad says. Probably dad's going to get you if you do something wrong. That's the feel of a lot of CPA firms. And, oh, my gosh, I got invited into the partner's office. I'm going to get fired. Uh-huh. Th- this feeling of dad's watching. Uh, and then this hierarchical structure of I can't talk to the person ahead of me. I got to talk to the person directly in front of me, the manager. I can't go around with the manager. To go to the partner, that's bad. It, right. It's it. They're very structured and locked down and controlled. And uh-huh. I like what you said. I think so. It's going to take sacrifice to blow that model up. Uh-huh. Let other people lead and control, and actually let your team members affect your culture in the way that they can. Uh-huh. So, so it's not only. We are going to be fun, dang it. You will have fun <laughs> right. at the retreat. Right. It's maybe you should be a culture of we're carefree. Uh-huh. And so let's what's you know, we want to build a culture where we can do what we want. And I think when mm-hmm. we start building culture, the article makes a a quick point that this is not about happy company picnics. Mm-hmm. It's culture is unashamedly about achieving results. So culture right. is directly linked to the results of the company, which that threw me. I still am not quite sure how you how that's linked, but they did right. give some examples, right? And they because yeah, they said something along the lines of uh, of what, what they say. Too many companies companies think of culture as a way to make people feel good about where they work and not as a way to help employees perform better. Which I thought was really weird because I thought, gosh, if if employees feel good about where they work, they will perform better. I assumed that was a a cause and effect sort of well, sort of thing. Yeah, I think I think what they're saying is a lot of times when we talk about company culture, we're talking about making it an enjoyable place to be. And right. And right. that's they're saying that's not first what right. it is. It's about company results. And they do throw out an example. And God, I'm tired of hearing Southwest Airline examples. But they're I'm so in, bored of Southwest I'm Airlines. sick of them. Come I wish on. they would just start losing money. I was so A34 stop. on my last flight, though. That was my boarding number. That was a pretty good one. Is A34. that a good one? Oh, yeah. Well, they give, they give an example of how their culture <laughs> affects company performance. They're like they have a fun employee yeah. empowered, em, empowered, an empowered, an employee empowered company. Nobody's got oily faces. They're right. employee <laughs> They're empowered. powdered up. So yeah. if they have an employee empowered company, 
that's affecting their uh, their results. Mm. They're actually doing better. People okay. are enjoying it because the employees have more power to actually you yeah. know act on the plane the way they want. Yeah. It's fun. We want to fly because they're fun. That makes them mm. have, make more money. Uh, blah blah blah. So the culture of a fun employee empowered culture is affecting performance for Southwest Airlines in a positive way. How, do you think what what percentage of businesses do you think have a business plan that they refer to regularly? Five <laughs> percent. Uh, you think it's that low? It's pretty low. Yeah, that does, I don't think people do that. Like a like a formal business plan, pretty low. Yeah, I think any kind of plan is is pretty pretty most. It's mostly I think, absent. I think the owner has ideas in their head, and so. Uh-huh. They're, but they're in their head. They haven't been formalized. Well, and that's the danger, right? They're living under assumptions that yeah. everybody else has the same idea because I hired them to work for me. Yeah, right. With, but that's not true. So you bump into those disconnections. Like, what? Well, why did why did you talk to my? Why did you talk to one of my clients that way? So, uh, well, because I thought we had a culture of uh, cussing right. clients out. And he's like, no, no, no. We have a culture of taking care of clients. Right, oh, I didn't he, know that. You assumed that I knew that. Mm-hmm. So we're, I don't know. I think owners of companies are making assumptions that the company should be run the way they want to. And I keep right. coming back to your thought on sacrifice, which is very interesting. We have to we have to actually sacrifice what we want as owners. And I think document mm-hmm. it in a plan and say, let's all build this plan that we built together. It's not about the right. owner anymore. Right. Hmm. See, and I and and when because my original thought about that sacrifice was we're sacrificing an easy victory, an easy gain, some kind of monetary uh, achievement, and we're sac- or, you know it's some, an efficiency or some sort of or, or some or a sale. We're sacrificing an efficiency or a sale. Oh, you thought you thought it was a dollar sacrifice? Yeah. No, that's think, not what I'm or, thinking. Or an efficiency or an efficiency sacrifice. That's what going back to the hiring. I'm just going to hire you because you've got a pulse and you know how to do mm-hmm. ultra tax. Yeah. So you're in. Right, and rather than going, no, wait, there's a lot more to it than that. Well, you see think, what I'm saying? Yeah, that's good. Uh, but so you were thinking, well, you're sacrificing about, power. Yeah, you're talking about more practical things. I'm talking about more insidious things that we don't even know to talk about. And that's, I'm the owner. It's understood. I get to do what I want. Right. And you know, this hit me in in my own company. So I wrote a blog post on the Thrival blog, you know, a while back. And it's called the balance of freedom and control. Mm-hmm. And I, because I was learning, you know what? I'm I'm giving up control in my company, which is it feels weird, mm. but I think it's right because what I get in return is freedom. It, right, fr- freedom to kind of do the things that I think I can do well in the company now, and I hope employees are are get, they're getting freedoms too to kind of do things the way they want. So. Yeah. I'm thinking of more power control issues. You're thinking of more practical efficiency, dollar money issues. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's probably what, both, and I'm sure it is. Well, and I do think you know, and I think the amount of control that's given to employees, you know, I think that's a that's a very a very integral part of how, what your culture ends up being. Are you a command yeah. and control culture, or are you a decentralized power culture? Right. That's 
That's maybe one of the first things. And this is where I was getting to with that business plan is I think that even fewer, if, if, if very few companies have a formalized business plan, then I would say almost none have a formalized culture plan. Oh, what is your vision for your culture? Write it down. Talk about it. Dream, dream your dream of what you want your company to be like and, and put some specifics to that and put it down on paper and run it by your people and see if your people get excited about that. Right. Well, that's what we're trying to do more. So out of our why comes five core values in Blummer CPAs. And those uh-huh. are those are supposed to be things you will see us doing as uh-huh. we live out our why. These are actions okay. that you'll kind of see us portraying. And it's kind of a circle. You know, I have a little screenshot of it. It's a, it's a circle. And in the middle, I wrote the word culture. So these five things encircle culture. And so these mm-hmm. core values are how we live out, um, you know, the purpose of our company. And the five things for us are experimental, authenticity, communication, considerate, and autonomy. These are, uh-huh. these are five very important things about our company that everybody should know. Um, and it's making us who we are. And if we preach that to everybody and we actually do something called onboarding, employees. Right. We've talked a lot about onboarding clients. Now onboarding yeah. employees is big. Uh, mm-hmm. We can use that onboarding as a methodology to kind of uh, influence what they think about our culture and how they can influence it. Right. Can we get, can we get this picture put in the show notes? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's, let's do that. And I think that's a great place to go. Cause, cause even doing something as, as, uh, I mean, this, your, your picture here, the circle with your five different, uh, attributes of your culture that you want to instill and that you want buy-in from your from your people. Uh, I would say most people haven't haven't put enough time just thinking about what they want their culture to be to even get to this point. Well, it was what it was hard, you know, because I because yeah. I didn't want. I mean, I could have written down thirty core values, uh, right? Uh, uh-huh. You know, we like you know we like Apple computers. I could have put that down. So that would have <laughs> been right. Apple lovers. That would have been that uh, one. Mm-hmm. Um, we like Western toilets, right? So, you didn't put anything about shorts and flip flops, although I know that a casual, a, a casual uh, a dress code is something that's important to you, right? So wear wear casual stuff. I could have put yeah. that down. So you, so the hard part, right, is is limiting that and saying what are the five biggest? Like maybe right. autonomy covers the you can wear flip flops part of our culture because you right. can kind of do whatever the crap you want to do. Yeah, like authenticity. That's we never lie. Never, uh, never, ever. Right. Good, ever. That's big time. I mean, we will lose a client. We will lose money. We will be sued. We will do anything, and if that's mm-hmm. understood, mm-hmm. you have to kind of, you know, we want a culture of authenticity. Anyway, all right. So we're almost done, and we're going to get uh, Ed Batista on the line. But should we list the seven performance attributes? Yeah. Of- Let- I, th- I think we should, and maybe even go over that, because 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 uh, it was interesting reading through this this blog post because they said that there's there's two components to a to a uh, winning culture. That's what they call it, a winning culture. One of them is a unique identity, and I think that's what. Uh, that's what we're talking about, about what, what's in the big four firms. We don't see a unique identity among them because we right. don't really know what sets them apart. Right. So what, what is your unique identity? And I think a lot of what you've got down here on your, uh, on your circle of culture 
is is it basically shows what your unique identity is in plumber CPAs. Then they say that there's also seven performance attributes that you should have at least three or four of these that tie in with your that that, that relate directly to your unique identity. So that's where the seven performance attributes so, are. So we've only got like a minute or two. You want to just read those seven? Sure. Uh, there, it's uh, you are you honest, performance focused accountable and owner-like, which means do people take ownership in their work and their results, collaborative, agile and adaptive, five, innovative, six, oriented towards winning. Some of those are kind of weird to me, but. Uh, You know, a lot of them seem very generic, but I think the idea, this is how you say, how how are we going to take our culture, our unique identity, and how are we going to leverage that to uh, to have results in our company, right? And you, it, it's these things that are going to help you leverage it. Well, and you have to remember they did a little research deal, so they said, you know, they're they're interviewing all these people and they're trying to ne- boil it down to what are the seven most common things we heard, and mm-hmm. so their research revealed these seven. And they said not right. not everybody's going to have all of these, but a high performing right. organization when they bumped into one that's like really winning and killing it, they've got three or four of these. Really, as a core part of what right. of what they what they do, so um, yep, that's cool. Culture culture is, I think, I think it is the next untapped winning part of firms. Uh, yeah. when, when they figure this out, um, we're going to have a different world uh, that yep. people can can work in in public yeah, companies. I, I think absolutely true, and I think I think the the, the CPA firms that are able to get these. Uh, earlier on are really going to have an advantage yeah. of where they can differentiate yourself. Cause there's, I mean, seriously, I, I think your consumers of accounting services don't see the differentiation among firms. We're right. all, the, we're all the same thing. Right. Hey, do, real quick. Can I just throw out a possible definition of culture? Yeah. Cause I mean, I think that's pretty important. Like what yeah. it is. So uh, Jennifer did some research on this. Here's kind of what she found in a number of places. It's, uh, most definitions describe culture as being the collective beliefs, values, traditions, knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors of a group, spoken or unspoken. A lot mm-hmm. of times, I like to call it tribal knowledge. I like that, mm-hmm. like that That's term. Good. It's knowledge the tribe knows, and no nobody outside the tribe can can know it. So it, it can be unspoken. It's tacit knowledge. It's that knowledge that's there, but, un, but unknown, untouchable. And right. I, and I think I think it's cool. We can take things that are unknown and we can document them to make them known, and that further enhances the culture. So really, just writing stuff down mm-hmm. and asking, y'all, are these five things? Do these depict kind of what our company's like, or should I switch out some of these words? Can do right. a lot just to move your culture forward. Right. Yep. No, I totally agree. And I think that the the biggest thing is collective. It's the collective beliefs. So right, and and so uh, as we end, can I just mention our sponsors? Who, yeah, uh, we couldn't. I mean, we couldn't have a podcast without our sponsors. We've we've always had sponsors, and they allow yep. us to do this. And we have a new sponsor this year, which is awesome. WorkEtc.com. It's W O R K E T C dot com. This platform, on this cloud based platform, is very robust. It's really, it's kind of the new practice management platform. 
uh, for firms. It kind of it does so much. It'll manage your finances and invoicing, and kind of link that link your invoicing into zero and things like that. Uh, but it also has project management, so task. It's very robust project management too. It has email marketing built into mm-hmm. it, and then it's mm-hmm. got support. It's got a whole support area. Uh, two that's built into it so you can do you know your clients can give you tickets and you know support tickets and things like that which is kind of a more efficient way to manage that stuff online Um, and they're always building out new stuff so and you can get it on the you know iphone ipad the web it's very (laughs) visual and colorful it's it's pretty so anyway work etc you guys rock uh, yeah, thank you for sponsoring the Thrivecast. Who else? Uh, we also have Avalara. They've been with us since the beginning. They were part of the Cloud Solutions Alliance that sponsored the po- podcast for the first couple of years. Avalara, they uh, they make sales tax less taxing. And if you've ever had to do sales tax compliance work, you know that it can be incredibly taxing. And it's weird because, I mean, everybody, even from little teeny tiny businesses, uh, if they've got any kind of retail component, to their thing, they're doing sales tax and sales oh, yeah. tax compliance, and it's a giant pain in the butt. Yeah, uh, Avalara gets in there and they uh, they automate that and help make that uh, easy. They're they're kind of they're they're not only have they done an exceptional job doing what they're doing, they've done it so well. There's there's like. Like they're the king, and no, is there anybody even else on the playing field that comes I, close? I don't know. They're they're pretty they're pretty major. In, they're in what they're, they do. they're amazing. They're amazing. Plus, and and they're uh, located in Bainbridge Island, Washington, which is uh, right where I grew up, near where I grew up. I was, Boom. yeah. Well, I have I'm, aunts and uncles that live there. I keep hearing about people that move there. It's a big deal. <laughs> it is. Well, listen, we're ready to get Ed Batista. He's a writer for HBR and a leadership uh, professor at Stanford and my personal coach, which I'm pumped to get. So let's get Ed Batista on the line. Let's do it. Cool. Greg and I are pumped to come back and talk about culture some more. So we've got... Ed Batista with us. He is an executive coach, uh, and he's an instructor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and my coach, and so we're pumped to have him. What's up, Ed? Thanks for coming, man. Hey, Jason. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, thank you very much, Greg. Yeah, you're you're welcome. I am I'm super excited that you're on here because I think as Jason's uh coach, you're going to have some dirt that you can uh, you can you can give us on Jason. So, Ed, in your in your experience with Jason, what is his biggest weakness? <laughs> what is his biggest weakness? That's the biggest difficulty that I've had in working with Jason. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, Ed, you told me this that was all confidential in our coaching, so <laughs> So we, no, we're talking about uh, culture, Greg, and so Ed is a huge writer on culture. Actually, Ed, you write for HBR, which we read a lot. We were actually just talking about an HBR article in the first part of the podcast, and we want to dive into, Ed, an article you wrote called Building a Feedback-Rich Culture for HBR, and that's going to be fun. So, um, Greg, I, I got a bunch of questions about this feedback-rich culture, but, Greg, I think you're going to try to stump him with the first one, huh? Yeah, well, well, not so much stump you. I just, uh, for me, I was wanting to, I, I just wanted you to, uh, to to sell me on the value of a feedback-rich culture uh, in, in the article, because you wrote an article for HBR uh, uh, that, that says that you're a passionate believer in the value of interpersonal feedback. When I think of culture and building culture, 
Um, I, I guess I wouldn't have I wouldn't have listed a feedback culture as being like you know if I was just brainstorming what I wanted my corporate culture to be. So tell me why that why that's so important and get me on board with you. Yeah, well, I think there's sort of two two halves of that equation. Uh, the first half is is viewing feedback as a particularly efficient way of learning in an organization. You know, if we're trying to the starting point here is that we're working with folks that are um, you know. They care about high performance. You know, they want to do a good job. Um, and the, the best way to help people understand what they're doing that's effective that they can do more of and what they're doing that's not effective that they should do a little bit less of or perhaps stop entirely is direct feedback from people who are involved. And we have a lot of feedback loops built into our organizations, even if we don't call it that particularly. You know, we've got feedback from our customers. We've got feedback from partners who are continuing to do business with us or not. That that in itself is feedback. Um, what we often have less of, though, in a lot of organizational settings is interpersonal feedback. Feedback about how I'm showing up as an individual, um, the specific behavior and, and how we're working together. How do, I, um, how do I raise tough issues with you? How do I step into a difficult conversation with you if I, if I do so at all? And the, the dilemma is that in a lot of organizations, there's not necessarily a culture that encourages that kind of feedback. And this isn't just the kind of thing that, that anybody, even a leader, can make happen as an individual. You can't just say, well, it's time for you know, me to uh, kind of turn this uh, process around and start giving people feedback. Um, because if you're not operating in a feedback-rich culture, people are going to resist it. Huh. Did, did yeah. that sell it, Greg? That that did, and you know, and I think that was it. Because I was when I was I was kind of talking with Jason off off mic about this whole thing. And Ed, I'm there's no way you would have known this about me. I do I do stand up comedy. Uh, I moonlight as a as a stand up comic, and and that was that was one of the things where I think I where I was going. I think I'm sold on this uh, on interpersonal feedback because that's what I love about stand up comedy. I get instantaneous feedback constantly while I'm on stage. Yes, and, exactly. And I think you nailed it. Where I use that that instantaneous feedback on stage. That's how I learn. That's how I become. That's how I become better. Every single time I get on stage, I get off and I'm better because I know what I'm doing that works and what I'm doing that sucks. Because people, through their laughter or lack thereof, are giving me that instantaneous interpersonal feedback. So I think I'm on board with that big time. And now I'm excited to know how can I get people to laugh at me at work to tell me that I'm doing a bad job. Okay, Greg, that's a fun story about stand up. (laughs) (laughs) So, but we want this to, you know, be related to our companies. (laughs) But so Ed, there was a, um, there was a cool point that was made in your article, uh, building a feedback rich culture. And this, this hit me, uh, which was pretty cool. And Greg, you were talking about immediate feedback, yeah. and and I think that's kind of the feedback we want, so we can grow as companies. But in companies, we don't get the immediate feedback that you get in stand up. But this was this was interesting, and I think this kind of hints as to why. So Ed, this quote in your article says, "The form that most interpersonal feedback takes, which is just a conversation between two people, tricks us into seeing it." That is that that culture as a product of the relationship, I guess, between those two people. When it's equally, if not more so, a product of the surrounding culture. So, so Ed, what you're saying is the culture you're building that says this is kind of the company we are. That's actually what's feeding this learning and this feedback 
that's not this. And is it necessarily immediate, like Greg was talking about, or will it grow and come over time? This this feedback culture. Well, it definitely takes time to to grow, especially if you're in an organization, and I think most organizations are this way, where there there's not a lot of personal feedback. You know, the, the interpersonal feedback um, that we often get, you know, it comes packaged in the in the performance review, which is something that happens fairly irregularly. Um, it's something that's often pretty stressful uh, and that people don't particularly feel excited about or, or uh, look forward to. And, uh, and it's also often tied to uh, discussions about compensation and other kinds of issues uh, that are going to make people feel sort of stressed out. So there's typically not a lot of feedback that happens outside of that kind of formal setting. And what I'm trying to make a case for is uh, more feedback conversations and less formal feedback conversations. Mm. They don't have to feel uh, like a uh, big, highly structured, formal event, but rather something that happens in the ordinary course of our working together. That, that you, you have two people that are motivated to do that, uh, great, you can do a little bit more of it. But you know, two people aren't an organization, and the rest of the organization is, is, is you know, creating a culture that can make these kinds of feedback conversations more or less difficult. Cool. And some of the and that, that speaks to some of the four essential elements in your article. You did talk about these four elements you want to build into your company. One of them was normalcy. So you're just saying is are you saying do it all the time or do it when it's just normal to talk about these things? I, I guess is you know, doing it all the time necessary or I think my starting point is do it a little bit more than you currently do. Okay. You know, that's probably a good rule of thumb. My assumption is that in most organizations, there's a lot of feedback that people are um, uh, thinking of themselves and not saying out loud. And that's not just negative critical feedback. That's also a lot of positive appreciation, a lot of stuff that people would really enjoy hearing that would make them feel good about the work they're doing. It doesn't get said in organizations. Cool. Right. I loved and I loved what you said uh, when you said just uh, offer one of one of your specific uh, uh, like action points was offer some positive feedback and stop there. Yeah, because because I because what you, you hear people talk about like is it the sandwich idea or the Oreo idea where it's like you say something positive then say what you really mean to say which <laughs> is this negative you know bomb you're gonna let off in their lap and then say something positive again. <laughs> Happens all the time. I see it happening all the time. I do it myself, and uh, and I think it's a hard habit to break. But once you realize what's actually going on in that process, uh, it becomes easier to break that habit. You know, when we offer that kind of sandwich structure, you know, a little bit of positive, then the real message, then a little bit of positive. Um, basically, what we're doing is we're managing our own anxiety. You know, we have something critical to say, and we're anxious about saying it. It's going to worry that the other person's going to... Um, uh, lash out or get defensive. Uh, maybe it's just a tough conversation to step into for any reason. And so we kind of smooth the ground with a little bit of positive feedback. But, you know, when we do that, we're training people. We're training people to understand that when we offer positive feedback, it's basically BS. Don't take it seriously. Wait for the real message. <laughs> yeah. And then we're going to wind up with a little bit of more BS. So yeah. I think it's really important to to recognize that we're, when, when you do that, you're devaluing the currency positive feedback in your organization. And a lot of times it's useful to just, hey, recognize that somebody did something uh, valuable, something that was uh, particularly effective or productive, express that appreciation, and then off. So, it, so we've been 
we've been talking a lot about culture. And one thing, and, and I found this in your article too, is that being good at building culture, which we are learning can become a competitive advantage for CPA firms. Uh, there's a lot of, it's, it's a lot of fluffy stuff, I guess I would say. <laughs> it's, and, and I think of business owners as, you know, these Jack Welch executors who, you know, the great business owners are the ones who lead the company, set a plan, keep people accountable to goals and execute those plans. But I'm hearing being good at building culture is the stuff of being safe, building trust, personal accountability, um, you know, these kind of things. And so I guess is what if somebody's not in tune with <laughs> the emotional side of themselves? <laughs> Are they not going to be able to build culture and talk about these more transparent, fluffy, vulnerable type topics? I'd say two things. First, I'd say first, um, building culture definitely does tap into you know this kind of, these sorts of soft skills. And yet, I wouldn't call it fluffy in the sense that it's it's not just about generating warm fuzzies. You know, it's not just about making people feel good and not holding them accountable. In fact, I'd say, you know, just the opposite. It, it is about making people feel good for the things that they should feel good about and making them feel uh, appreciated. Um, but it's also very much about holding people accountable. And yet it's about doing so in a way that um, that doesn't come across as overly harsh, overly critical, punitive, uh, and makes people reluctant to really stop and examine their mistakes. I mean, I think if you're able to get feedback most effectively, you're able to point out where something has gone wrong, uh, where maybe you have done something wrong or somebody else has underperformed, uh, and you can get the whole organization to really stop and figure out what, you know, what, what, what happened here. Um, and instead of trying to, you know, cover up a mistake uh, out of some sense of embarrassment that if I get uh, exposed, I'm going to feel some uh, uh, you know, sense of shame about it. I can actually say, no, you know, I, I screwed up. Um, I'm going to take responsibility for it, and uh, and we can all learn from the experience. And and I th- I think what you're saying is that conversation is easier when you've been building feedback into the culture all along with a lot of positives, or or, or you even make a note, just a lot of conversations in general, talking about your weekend, getting to know individuals. You're trying to build this, I don't know, you're trying to make relationships deeper at work so that, you know, feedback is not awkward when it needs to happen. And, and not just because it's a good thing to do, but because if you have these kinds of uh, stronger relationships in which people know each other a little bit better, um, when something goes wrong, um, you've got a stronger found. You've built a foundation uh, on which you can have these kinds of conversations, and it doesn't feel like a, uh, an extremely stressful, freaked out moment where everyone is uh, uh, you know, finding themselves very stressed, and, and, and it's difficult for folks to have that conversation. Yeah. Hey, Ed, what do you what do you think about about this? Uh, because I, I this is something that I've been that I've noticed uh, and, and think back on, on regularly. I first noticed it back when I was actually I, I used to be a, in a former life. I was a middle school math teacher and I noticed it there. But uh, but but it even happened the other day. I had a guy come into my office and uh, and we were talking for about five minutes, and then I noticed his fly was down, <laughs> and I what? didn't give him feedback about his fly like right as soon as I noticed it, and then I realized that I can't. That all of a sudden I'm like I can't give you that feedback anymore because I didn't say it 
instantaneously because now all of a sudden there's it's it's this weird thing where it's like I'm worried that he's going to wonder why I didn't tell him his fly was down the moment I noticed his fly being down <laughs> and what what's the subtext there and is there something else going on and do I want to you know and stuff like that what's your thought about instantaneous about the instantaneous nature of feedback yeah, so well, let me just check. So, Greg, you just let this guy continue on his day? I sent him, I let him go walk out of my office <laughs> nice. at half mast or better. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. Because I missed my window. <laughs> I missed my window of opportunity to tell him about his open window, window of opportunity. So, so you're, so, Greg, you honestly, you're, you're saying, I'm really saying that because I think feedback is best delivered hot. If it like right at the moment when something happened, then the moment you notice it, you deliver it. And it's so much less. Uh, I mean, it's the scariest thing to do because we don't want, you know, if it, like, at least if somebody's like me, you want to analyze what you're going to say and rehearse it a couple of times before you actually spit it out. But there's something about the authenticity and the genuineness of saying something immediately that also makes it so much more acceptable to the person who's receiving it. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. And, and, you know, if we're talking about a situation where someone's, uh, you know, someone's interpersonal behavior is part of the, the, the problem and the issue, um, you, your ability to give that feedback in the moment quickly is what's going to help them make a connection much more quickly. Oh, when I when I you know when I, when I step into that behavior, um, I'm generating some you know some kind of negative response. I can I can learn much more readily as a result. And the dilemma is uh, you know from our position as we'd like to offer that kind of feedback, um, we can feel that there's a tension between gosh do I do I know this person well enough? Can I step right. into this? and might wait, but then we might wait and then, you know, experience what you experience, which is, ah, this feels, feels like time has passed a little bit. Um, I don't know that I can, can go back to that moment. So I think the challenge is um, get over our sense of uh, embarrassment about offering the kind of feedback and recognizing, look, it's going to benefit the other person. The other person wants to learn. Uh, we're only going to help them. And, you know, it's still quite understandable. There was a, uh, Great uh, professor of management guy, Chris Argeris, um, who uh, came up with this concept called defense routine. Basically said in, in organizations, when, when we feel some sense of embarrassment, um, we are inclined not to speak. We're inclined not to say what's on our mind. That's a defense routine. And I think what we need to, to do in building a, a feedback culture is recognize our embarrassment that might be holding us out. Of, uh, some some useful feedback and and and, and navigate around that You know Ed, that that reminds me of something you said earlier. Is like when we sandwich our negative feedback with positives, that's about us. It's it's about us relieving our anxiety. Mm-hmm. And you just you just mentioned it again, where there's a lot of our own interpersonal issues that are actually preventing building this feedback rich culture. It's so, and I guess. It, do you think that's common? Are owners of businesses, do they have their own interpersonal issues that are roadblocks to them building this feedback-rich culture? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, my experience in with, uh, working with leaders and most of the folks in my coaching practice are mid-career leaders, um, is that the, you know, people are people run their own business for a reason. You, know, you run your own business because you, you are an entrepreneur. You don't want to be told what to do. 
Um, you want you are creative. You've got a lot of ideas, and you want to see them put in place. You don't want to be stifled by a you know a rigid you know bureaucratic hierarchy. But a dilemma then is when you've got a, a leader, a business owner uh, who has that entrepreneurial spirit, who's who's doing things the way he or she wants to do it, and the other people in the organization don't feel empowered um, to to speak up. And uh, even if you know you're a successful business owner because you've typically had you know a lot of good ideas, and and you are often the you know the smartest person in the room, if you're your team doesn't feel empowered to speak up and push back on you when you, when you have a crappy idea mm. um, or they've got a better idea. I mean, if they're not giving you back, um, then you're, then you're missing out. And so I think there's a, there's a thread that connects uh, a lot of entrepreneurial leaders and business owners on the one hand, the, you know, the, the, the characteristics that uh, you bring to this work helps you help you succeed. But you also have to figure out, hey, how, how am I potentially getting in my own way? And, and, and often, that, to me, that involves um, recognizing I might be doing something as a leader that's preventing people from giving me feedback. I need to invite more of it. That's probably pretty common for owners, too. They, they just – they're not building a culture where people feel, like you say in point number one in your article, safety and the trust uh, for people to give you feedback, I guess. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's, it's – for me, you know, get having the opportunity to come into people's working relationships, to come into organizations and see how things are are operating. I often see uh, leaders leaders don't see a lot of things that their team members see. Um, you know, at, whenever we're in a leadership role, we, we we often you know put on a, a set of blinders, particularly about our own behavior. We don't see how we're impacting other people, um, and even with the best of intentions, I'm not suggesting that people are operating. You know, out of some kind of you know malicious state, um, we can operate in a way when we have any kind of leadership power that tends to shut other people down. There are very very subtle ways that a leader can use his or her authority to basically say, "Hey, I don't, I don't really want to have this conversation now. I'm not really interested in your input. Um, uh, please stop talking." Hmm. And and we we disinvite uh, you know a lot of feedback that I think is potentially useful. Very interesting. That is interesting, and that that kind of leads to to my next question, Ed. Uh, in because you talk your fourth your fourth point in your article was about personal accountability, specifically for leaders in a in a firm, and and I thought I really liked the idea that you said that so many that, that a lot of leaders will say yes, we do want to have this interpersonal feedback rich culture in our firm, but you've got to <laughs> the the only way to get that to happen is to walk the talk and to make it happen and you you use a phrase that I hadn't that I hadn't seen before. You say the key is to fail forward, um which I thought was very a, a great a great phrase. But I think even in the bigger context, you're not just saying to, you know, you're afraid to do this. You're, if you're leading by example, you might fail and, and fail. It's not just failing forward. It's publicly failing forward for everyone to see. How do you publicly fail forward and continue to, and not lose any momentum that you've, that you've started? Well, I think, I think it starts with your ability as a leader to hear some criticism from your team and not freak out, not get overly defensive, not overreact. Uh, here's a, you know, a short example from my recent experience. Um, each year I spend about six months working with small groups of, of MBA students at Stanford. And in, in one of um, 
uh, in one of my, my roles down there. And I had a group of uh, six students. Um, um, they're second year, a group of select second year students who we've uh, taken on as leadership fellows. Mm. Um, they are each responsible in turn for a large group of, of first year students. And I'm trying to, trying to help these second years um, learn about our program and, and help them be more, better prepared to guide their first year students. So we're, we're meeting on a, about a weekly basis. And uh, we're a couple of meetings into our, our process this year. And there was just a really flat feeling in the room. I could just tell that this group was not, not feeling it and, and things were not working well. I was starting to feel a sense of responsibility. How have I you know, screwed up here? Mm. And thankfully, you know, these folks are Stanford MBAs. They're really sharp and they're willing to, to step into some tough conversations. And we, we got into a conversation about how the group, uh, how the group was going. And, and we said, look, we're just, uh, the, one of the things that we're feeling some frustration about is the room that we've been assigned. You know, it's a little stuffy. Uh, if we're meeting right after lunch. People's energy is low. We need, you know, we need a different, um, we need to mix things up a little. Uh, and it was, I was able to hear their feedback about our group experience, recognize on the one hand, I have some responsibility for it. I, you know, personally, I'm the only individual in the room as a leader to figure out, hey, how do we meet elsewhere? How do we improve our working conditions? Um, and take it, uh, you know, take take my responsibility in it, but also not get overly defensive about it. Just recognize, okay, the group is not off to a great start. Um, we can course correct. And I wound up uh, just adopting a new strategy with that group where we, we found a different meeting room every week. Uh, it was a group that really needed, they needed that kind of stimulation. And we ended up here in really, on a really high note. So it was just, that's a little micro example of making sure that members of a team feel willing to give you feedback as a leader when things aren't going well. You can hear it, understand what you want to do okay. with pieces of it, and not get defensive. Gotcha. So, so I guess that personal accountability, when you're talking about that, it's not just so much where people in the firm are saying, well, our boss says that we're supposed to give each other interpersonal feedback, and he's not really saying anything. It's more being being a gracious recipient and a thankful recipient of the interpersonal feedback that's coming towards you as a leader yeah, precisely. And and in fact, modeling the way that you'd like to see the rest of your team respond. Right. I love it. I love it. But the but the thing is, if you don't have okay, let's actually say, hang hang on, hang on, Jason. Oh. Just a second. Ed, that was a wonderful point, and I appreciate the way that you that you explained that to us. Okay, go on. I had to give him some immediate feedback. I didn't want to well, let that opportunity slip by. <laughs> Well, Ed, he's about to slam. He's about to sandwich it with a punch in the gut. So, so get ready. No. That's right. No, I, this. So this made me. Um, this made me wonder, though. I think again. Let's say a company does not have this feedback-rich culture. How do you get there? And I'm thinking. And I think you made this point in your article. The owner has to lead first. They have to say, "Somebody, give me some feedback." Hmm. And. It's like they have to be vulnerable first before the employees. Is that true? Is that always true? The owner has to go first. I believe it's true in most cases. You know, it, it, when you are in the ownership role, you've got the authority. People are gonna um, they're gonna take their cues from you. They're gonna sit quietly on the sidelines until they see you actively playing the game because they're looking from your example to determine what are the rules here. Is it okay? You know. Is it okay for me to express some critical feedback when something has not gone well? Or am I going to get slammed for it? Uh, how much can I do it in public? And another 
point I make in the article is the value of doing some work in public. Now, obviously, some of these kinds of conversations, they're simply too stressful to happen in a public setting. You need to have them one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. And I would encourage you to start to look at the margins. Can you have more of these kinds of conversations in public because then the whole team learns um, at once, not only about the specific issue under discussion, but also takes an example that, you know, it's okay for us to have some of these conversations in public. Um, that is a, that's a normal part of how we work. You know, that's cool. One, one example, and I love this in the article, one example of the owner uh, building this feedback-rich culture is, and this this was a trip, I never thought about this, is to ask maybe an employee, can I give you some feedback right now? And making it okay for the employee to say, no, <laughs> no, you, you can't give me any feedback right now. And that builds the safety and trust. So I think, obviously, I guess you got to do that uh, in a specific way, but I guess it's healthy for people to be able to say no to the boss in this instance. Is that true? To be able to set some limits is real important. I mean, I, I don't want uh, people to build up a head of steam about, you know, we're going to build a feedback-rich culture, and then we're going we're gonna to have these kinds of conversations all the time, you know, every time. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. Especially when you're in a position of authority, and this, this goes back to the, you know, what I was saying about the very subtle ways in which you can use that authority to lever people into a certain position. If you, as an owner, ask... And I give you some feedback. It'd be very, very rare that someone's going to actually say no if they feel like saying no. But maybe it's a you know maybe it's a terrible day for them. Maybe they had a terrible night at home, a terrible morning. Um, they're stressed out. They're not going to be in a position to really listen to you. Um, I'm not suggesting that they give people license to just block feedback permanently. You know, I'm not interested in having this conversation. Right. But I am interested in ensuring that people feel free to say, you know, I'm, I'm actually I'm totally distracted. I really care about what you have to say. Can we have this conversation this afternoon or, or tomorrow? Right. <clears throat> that And that makes a lot of sense because I do remember seeing that in there and going, gosh, there's probably going to be that one guy in the office who you're like, hey, can I give you some feedback? And he's always like, nope, not a good time. No, <laughs> it's no, it's no. never a good time. Tomorrow's not good either. Yeah. When when could I? Gosh, I'll have to get back to you. Probably. <laughs> how, about, how about never? It's never yeah. good. How about, how about right after right after I retire? See you then. So, so Ed, let's say I want to build. Okay, I want to build a feedback-rich uh, culture. Let's say people listening have not been doing that, and they're they want to be vulnerable, build that trust. Um, you, do you think a, a, a great place to start would be for the owner to say, "All right, let's do an after-action review," which we talk a lot about uh, on our podcast here, and we're going to start with me. We're not going to go around the table. We're going to say give me some feedback as the owner of things I could improve in the company. And we're going to stop the meeting there and we'll, you know, we'll do some feedback in other meetings for everybody. But let, let me just start with me and ask y'all to be uh, vulnerable with me to share with me. And, and should I give them a heads up? I'm going to do that so they can plan about how to trash me in the meeting or how should I do that? I, I go to about, you know, the, 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 the point, one of the points that we've talked about that I make in the article is, is normalcy. Mm. And I think, you know, if you're looking to change your, uh, your firm's culture, you are looking to turn a battleship around. It's something that's going to happen, you know, slowly and deliberately and over time. So you don't want to freak people out and you don't want to do anything that's too weird. Yeah. So I think uh, if, for example, if, you know, and, it, and this all depends on your starting point. You might say, you know what, in, in my firm, we're, we're pretty good. I, I think actually, you know, I, I hear pretty candidly from my employees. You know, I, they let me know when I've rubbed them the wrong way somehow, and I can let them know when their behavior isn't, isn't, isn't sort of counterproductive. 
but we've been doing that just one-on-one. Maybe we could do a little bit more of that in a team setting. So then I think the situation you described might be a, uh, a nice next step. But if you're going from a standing start, if you're operating a situation where, wow, I'm, you know, I, I, I never get feedback from my employees, even, even when we're having a one-on-one conversation, um, I honestly, I know they're thinking things that they're not telling me. Um, that tells me it's probably not yet a safe enough situation mm-hmm. for you to do what you just described. Because I imagine you'd, you'd, you might lay out there and it would be silence. Silence, there, yeah. There and say, what the heck? We've never done anything like this. <laughs> right, right. So that's usually, it can't be weird. It can't be weird. It can't be weird. It can be a little weird, but it can't be too weird. Otherwise, people are going to say, I don't know what the rules of this game are. Yeah. I'm not going to play until I figure them out. Right. That's what people do play games. I mean, these interpersonal games are happening in businesses and, and it I, we can't help it. We're humans and we're but we're we're putting up these fronts, we're kind of putting up walls and they're just protections and it sounds like a lot of this is to kind of you know, eliminate some of those walls. But you're saying you can't bulldoze the Berlin Wall. You you know like they did. You need to really just take it down maybe one stone at a time and just um, and you you mentioned in the article this was so interesting. Um, since we don't do it very often, you know, share this feedback, we're not good at it. So it sounded like a skill, like you can practice doing this. It's absolutely a skill. I think you can break it down into some very very you know, simple steps. I, I'd say, I say that the uh, and it's something that comes out of um, uh, a number of, of courses that I've been involved in at the business school is the, you know, the simplest uh, sort of feedback construction. Uh, is when you do X, I feel Y. Mm. Uh, you know, and that and that can be you know positive and negative. Uh, but if you're, the more the more behaviorally specific you're able to be about X, and the more personal you're able to be about Y, um, the better and more effective the feedback is going to be. You know, so if you're if you've got somebody who um, uh, is you know interrupts you a lot in a conversation, you know, you're able to say, hey, when when you um, interrupt me repeatedly. Uh, I feel uh, a little irritated. Um, I, I feel somewhat disrespected, and I'm imagining that you're not really hearing what I have to say and taking it my point of view. So you're able to, you know, to share something that might be critical and generate a defensive reaction, but maybe smooth it down a little bit so that the other person can understand where you're coming from and why, how their behavior is getting in the way of effective working. Mm. I had a manager at a firm one time that that did that to me. I would I would be talking about something, and in mid sentence, she would mention, "I got to I got to get my car repaired." I just remembered I got to go make a phone call to. I mean, it was not even related to what I was talking about, and she did it so much. It was so it was so abrupt. It was very awkward to just keep being interrupted like that. And you know, I, I never thought about saying. You know, when you do that, I feel interrupted. I want to punch her in the stomach is what I wanted to do. <laughs> but but that punching her in the stomach would not have been an effective form of feedback. <laughs> it would have been a it, form of feedback. It, it would have been immediate. <laughs> yeah. and, and, it, and, and I imagine even just lashing out verbally with your irritation, also ineffective. But the alternative, you know, saying nothing leaves you, you know, still today, years later. With the, obviously this sense of like, hey, I worked for this person. I really didn't like them. Um, I had a bad experience with them. That sticks with you. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I, my suggestion is finding ways to say those kinds of things that are less likely to provoke uh, a hostile response or defensiveness, 
you know, if, if you don't say it, if you don't get it off your chest, it's going to linger. And I think your example is case in point. Yeah. So, so we're almost done. Uh, we're running out of time. Greg, I got one more thing. Did you have anything else before you, I want to ask? You nail You go for it. Okay. So, uh, and Ed, you, you actually mentioned this guy in one of our personal coaching sessions, Dr. John Gottman. And kind of, can you can you give us maybe just a quick recap of his research related to how many positives to one negative in your feedback interactions and kind of what's a good ratio and how that works? So, so uh, Dr. Gottman, whose work has been really influential on, um, uh, me, you know, me personally and a number of the faculty I work with at the business school, he's uh, the world's leading researcher on marriage and, and long-term committed relationships up at the University of Washington in Seattle. And uh, we believe that his work has a lot of implications for organizational life. Even though he studies people in their personal relationships, we believe that there's a lot of uh, transferability. Uh, one of the things that his um, uh, work shows is that uh, uh, people, uh, couples in a relationship that is successful, like they'll last over time, um, when they're fighting, when they're in the middle of a conflict, there's a ratio of five positive interactions to one negative interaction. And that's that's breaking it down in a very, very simple way. It can be as, as uh, basic as turning towards someone when they're speaking, hmm. just turning away from them. That, that's a positive interaction Let's rather see. than... Um, it can also be something like, um, you know, cracking a joke in the middle of, a, of an argument um, and, and having the other person, you know, laugh in response to that, recognizing, yeah, this is a tough, stressful moment, but, you know, you said something that was funny. I'm going to, I'm going to laugh at your joke. So, so in the same conversation, five positives to one negative in one conversation, not over time. It, well, not over time, but uh, the, that five to one ratio shows up in conflict. And what uh, his research shows is that there is a, um, a much larger number of positive interactions among people who have successful relationships, um, suggesting that we build this uh, emotional bank account with each other by mm. sharing some appreciation, by having mm. these positive moments, so that when we need to make a withdrawal, when we need to get into some kind of conflict um, and uh, you know, share some critical feedback, um, we, we have this bank account that we've, that we've built up with this person through appreciation and positive feedback. And, and not inauthentic uh, BS, but stuff that is really... Uh, really and that's interesting. I, w- I might want to say, well, what if we never have to give negative feedback? But but I think the whole gist of the article is you do have to make that withdrawal because you want feedback. That's part of learning. And there's always something to learn. So we're going to have to make withdrawals. Let's just fill up the bank account so we can make them. Well said. I think it's exactly what awesome. Was. We're out Very of time. Good. Greg, we're out of time. Ed, we're out of time, man. This has been awesome. It has been Thank you very much. I've really appreciated the, the opportunity to talk about this stuff with you. Okay, so we'll 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 come back to Ed in the secret stash, so you guys will get to hear that in December. Right on. Thanks so much, Ed. All right, thank you guys. That was awesome, Ed Batista. Was awesome, don't you think, Greg? Yes. I thought I thought it was awesome. He also off mic told us that his uh, his name in Portuguese does mean Ed the Baptist, and that's. Uh, that was that was big time to spend some time with Ed the Baptist. Well, cool. So hopefully people can uh, they can now go build a feedback rich culture. Um, so go do it, people. Yeah, go tell somebody something that they're doing that sucks. <laughs> you have to be. You have to say five <laughs> positive things first. Like uh, I like your shoes, nice hair. Oh. 
your glasses are not too big. That's cool. <laughs> your ears are situated properly on your head, and your eyes, uh, thankfully, are properly parallel. And say, but you are the worst CPA I've ever right. run into in my life. And boom, it says that'll work perfect. <laughs> That's so it. That's it. I like flipping it around, starting with the the negative. I, I'd prefer to dig myself out of holes. That's that's motivational to me. Um, <laughs> big big thanks to our sponsors once again. Big thanks to Work Etc. and Avalara. You can check them out at WorkETC.com and Avalara.com. There's also links in the show notes. Yes. And Greg, what is your Twitter handle if people want to um, yell at you? My Twitter handle is at uh, Greg Kite. Kite is spelled with a Y, not like an I. It's not the kite you fly in the sky. It's uh, that it was rhyming too that much. Was, I, I like the intentionally, rhyming. but uh, I like the rhyming. So my yeah, my, my Twitter handle is Jason M Blummer. B L U M E R. Please reach and out you know to us. It, I, I I was trying to compose a, a text to you on my. Uh, on my iPhone, Boom. and I used Siri, and I called you Jason Bloomer because I knew that that's how she would pronounce it, and <laughs> she does. You can check that out on Siri. Uh, we got some th- people to thank. First off, thanks thanks to you, listener, for putting us into your brain uh, once a month. We 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 wouldn't do this if it, if it weren't for people like you. Yeah. So thanks for yeah. downloading and subscribing and all that stuff. And some of you have left some feedback on iTunes, and it was good. So thank you for that. So please go to iTunes and leave us a, a five-star rating if you choose. I want this to be a safe and honest conversation. So if you want to share some feedback with us, don't do it on iTunes, I guess. Yeah, and, and uh, thank, thanks also to, to Jennifer Bloomer, our... <laughs> Our, uh, I do not our recognize Bloomer. And to Aaron Dowd, our audio engineer. Uh, and I think that's it for us for uh, this month. We're out. Thank you, Pete. Take care.